And that's just a lot of knocking doors, dragging people out, getting them to vote, making the calls, knocking the door again, making the call again, sending a piece of mail. I mean, it sounds rudimentary, but but that's how that's how campaigns are won in very close races. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. And welcome to Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. I'm Joe Arnold. Sean, Kevin, Jared, all off this week. Scott, I'm going to be off next week, and I want to be able to grab you and get the latest. I was looking at the Twitter box today on this, recording this on um, Wednesday, August 31st, the year of our Lord, 2022, 5.45 Eastern Time in the afternoon. Saw Kyle Kondik from uh, the uh, Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia, the Center for Politics there, uh, talking about their latest uh, Senate races. And I thought to myself, Scott, let's let me get your own Crystal Ball here. Let's take a look at these uh, at these Senate races and where we are before we go. But before we go to Senate, let me go and ask you the question. A lot of chatter over the last week that even the House might be back in play. Yeah, uh, you know, for the longest time, it's been sort of much a, a given. Hey, the House is gone. That's going Republican. The Senate's going to be 50-50. Has your overall view changed on the House before we get to these Senate races? No, not really. Uh, I still think the Republicans are going to win. Uh, a lot of people have downgraded their margin predictions in the House, but I still think it's quite likely that the Republicans. When the House, I've, I've taken to calling it a mortal lock, you know, for most of the cycle, I'm, I'm still there. Uh, but the margin matters. I mean, if the Republicans get a very, very narrow majority, uh, that obviously complicates uh, Kevin McCarthy's attempt to become the speaker. And then if he becomes the speaker, how he how he manages the House. And so the, the margin is important. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but I still would be really surprised if the Republicans uh, don't win the House. I, I do admit in some of the some of the polling uh, Joe Biden has ticked up a few points and the generic ballot has obviously changed a little bit. Uh, there are some other polls. The Reuters survey from yesterday that I saw still had Biden pretty low, I think 38 percent. But uh, there is some evidence out there that, that Democrats have had a, you know, what are the kids calling it these days? A vibe shift. And uh, and so they're there. And, and I also think this, while that may be going on, there's also a lot of happy talk going on. And there's also a lot of group therapy going on between uh, Democrats, the Democrats who run the campaigns and the people who who are in the political media. I think they're really feeding off each other in an effort to make themselves feel better. But uh, it's not even Labor Day yet. And um, uh, you and I both know a bunch of stuff's going to happen between now and Election Day that we can't even predict yet. And, you know, we'll see what kind of impact that has on the on the overall uh, political environment. So I'm going to go ahead and ask you to we'll, we'll just jump to the conclusion here on the Senate first and then we'll pick into some individual states. Where are you right now in your prediction on the uh, Senate balance of power at the end of the election here? Well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of where uh, Senator McConnell is. You know, he's taken to saying it's a 50-50 Senate in a 50-50 country and all the most important states are all purple. <laughs> and so uh, it, it really is close. And by the way, with Charlie Crist's uh, resignation from the U.S. Congress in Florida because he's running for governor, the House is even now nearly 50-50. I mean, I mean, we really do have a country that's that's divided almost right down the middle. The exception, of course, is that uh, Democrats control the White House and therefore they control the 50-50 Senate. But the the levers of power in this country are almost exactly evenly divided uh, as we head into this midterm. And that, that's really where the Senate sits today. You referenced the uh, crystal ball map that came out. And I it also caught my eye because 
essentially, and, and we can go through it, uh, he's uh, Kyle, who, by the way, I really respect Kyle Kondik and think he's a terrific analyst, which is why I always look out for his maps. But, uh, you know, as I look at it, um, I mean, you can just see how 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 close it is. And he's got the thing boiled down to 49 Democrats, 49 Republicans and two toss ups. And uh, and you can see you can easily see there how the Senate could wind up right back where it is at 50 50. Um, so let's go. Let's let's go through it, actually, yeah. and, and see, see where yeah. we land uh, with each other. We are going to go, by the way, that the, and since we mentioned Cal Conduct, uh, after we go through the two toss ups that are on the um, the, the map here from the UVA. Uh, uh, but before that, as I mentioned, there was two changes that Kyle Conduct tweeted out today on the crystal ball Senate races. We will get to those uh, after the toss-ups. Those are Arizona, where Mark Kelly, of course, is the incumbent. That's a toss-up. They're changing the rating to Leans Democratic. Mm-hmm. And the Pennsylvania uh, open seat with uh, Pat Toomey retiring, uh, going from toss-up to leaning Democratic. But in the meantime, Scott, we promised we'd get to those um, toss-ups first. Let's go to Nevada first. And this is Senator uh, Catherine Cortez Masto uh, leading her challenger. I guess it's the former state attorney general, Adam Laxalt, uh, there. Uh, Now, the last poll that I saw in that uh, from last week that she had like a seven-point lead there. Um, But the Cook Political Report, I should point it out, uh, rates Nevada as one of the four toss-up races that could determine to control the Senate. So where are we in Nevada? Well, uh, I'm glad we started with this one because I think Nevada has actually moved to the Senate's uh, number one target for Republicans. It's a Democrat incumbent. You know, when we started out this cycle, I think everybody thought Arizona and Georgia were the top two states. But I really do believe now most political operatives in the Republican Party think it's Nevada. The most recent survey that I see out of Nevada is from the Trafalgar Group, uh, which has an A minus rating from 538 for what it's worth. So, uh, you know, recognized as a pretty accurate pollster. And they have Laxalt leading uh, Cortez Masto uh, 47 to 44. So I, I believe Nevada is at the top of our list, our meaning Republicans. And um, and I, I really do expect the, the party to win there. So in a 50-50 Senate, uh, as we kind of go through this, that would put the party at, at plus one. They only need to pick up one, and that would put them at plus one. Laxalt uh, is the right nominee for that state. Uh, he's got a good uh, political pedigree there. I think Cortez Masto is particularly weak, and I think Biden is weak in, in Nevada. Um, I, I do find it interesting that Cortez Masto was one of the first uh, Senate Democrats to come out against Joe Biden's plan to uh, give the $10,000 or $20,000 in student debt uh, relief. She obviously saw it as a political liability because of the way she came out and denounced it. So obviously Biden is, I think, an anchor uh, on Cortez Masto out there. I think Laxall's ascendant. Um, and uh, right now, uh, as we sit here heading into Labor Day, Republicans feel really good about this state. Does the uh, governor's race in Nevada affect this Senate race or vice versa? You know, I, I don't hear that race being talked about in the same way like we when we'll get to Georgia, but I, I do hear a lot of people talking about the impact of the Senate race and governor's race in Georgia on each other. I don't hear that as much about Nevada, candidly. Um, and so, um, uh, no, I, I, I'm not I'm not I'm not sure that it does, to be honest. With the, you. I mean, the reason look, I bring I, it up, reason I bring it up is is sort of the, the Trump factor, because in this situation, you have um, Joe Lombardo is the the Trump backed Republican. And in, in, in certainly in the in the governor's race, while the incumbent uh, governor is uh, Steve Sisolak, um, you know, it, 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 I was just curious, because obviously Laxalt is also a Trump backed 
you know, challenger in the Senate race there. I just wasn't sure how to what extent Trump is a factor. Well, I mean, I, I think um, I mean, look, he's he's going to be a factor in the national political environment. So to the extent that trickles down to individual states, you know, it's it's sort of hard to hard to pinpoint, a you know, a, a, an algorithm that would tell you how, how impactful it is. I think that the metric that I'm watching in Nevada, same as I am in, in Arizona and Texas and some other states, is the extent that the polling is true about Hispanics uh, swinging toward the Republican Party. There's obviously hmm. a heavy Hispanic population there. Uh, also, Asian-American population there uh, is pretty substantial and growing. And you can see in the polling a lot of swing uh, from Democrat to Republican there, which I think is going to benefit uh, Laxalt. I don't I just don't find Cortez Masto to be a particularly compelling incumbent. I know Democrats think she's running a good campaign. Uh, and, and she's what she's trying to do is localize the race. Right. She's trying to, to make this about anything but the national environment. Uh, uh, so we'll see. Uh, but I my personal view is uh, a Kyle has it in the toss up category. I, I currently think this one leans Republican myself. I'm going to quibble with a couple of his a couple of his ratings. This one is one of them. I, I mean, I guess you could you could absolutely call it a toss up. But in my mind, uh, you know, from the Republican point of view, this one's l- leaning toward the Republican Party. Admittedly, a, a, a one last note on this, a, a poll from last week. There was a Suffolk University Reno Gazette Journal poll in the Nevada race. But to your point, Scott, about um, Cortez Masto trying to localize this in that same poll, they asked about the top issues for voters and um, inflation was number one mm-hmm. at 34 percent, followed by 13 percent for abortion being the top concern. So it seems to me that that kind of follows the Republican hopes in terms of what's going to motivate voters to show up on Election Day. Yeah. Uh, if you look at the national polling uh, right now that's out, Joe, um, from several organizations, it, there's a real divide forming uh, between Republicans and Democrats on what they consider to be the top issue. For Republicans, it's by far and away inflation. I mean, it, 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 nothing else comes close to the extent that there are other things. It's like immigration, border security, crime and sort of those quality of life issues. But for Democrats, it's abortion, gun control, climate change uh, and go on down the list of their concerns. So really, uh, when you think about what that what what does that mean for a campaign, it fundamentally means the campaigns are having conversations about issues with really two separate groups of voters. Because if you're talking to a group of voters who care about inflation, the border and crime, and Democrats are talking to voters who care about gun control, climate change and abortion. I mean, you can imagine it's like two ships passing in the night, but not communicating with each other. Uh, they're just they just happen to be in the same ocean <laughs> at the same time. And so uh, it, it can create a little bit of a cognitive dissonance, <laughs> you know, in a campaign. We, we think of them as opponents and they are obviously on the ballot running against each other. But the conversations they're having and who they're having those conversations with are quite different. In Emerson, an Emerson College poll in the Georgia Senate race, sticking with issues first and then getting to the candidates, 36 uh, percent of voters believe the economy which includes jobs, inflation, taxes, is the most important issue facing people in Georgia right now. Abortion access, 20% of Georgians say it was the number one concern. Crime ranked third at 15% as the most important issue. So not necessarily inconsistent with what you saw in Nevada. And this is a situation where you have, well, we'll start with that first. What do you think? Well, I, I do think um, whether you view crime as a big issue may may. Uh, uh, depend to some degree on where you live. I mean, if you live in Atlanta or you live in one of these larger metro areas in any state that's had 
you know, a huge murder spike or a big crime wave, obviously it's going to be more on your mind than if you happen to live out in the desert, <laughs> you know, in Nevada. And so, you know, where you're not living around that that many people. So I, I do think your geography and the kinds of urban areas or high crime areas in your state that exist, I think that, I think that could impact the polling. Um, I think depending on how you ask these questions, do you care about the economy? Do you care about inflation? I mean, th- those could be two separate things. But obviously, if you go to the grocery store and you're paying what you're paying right now for food, that has an impact on how you view the overall economy. I mean, you may feel secure in your job. You may you know, not feel threatened in that way, but you feel threatened uh, in other ways like, hey, you know, I got a 3% raise this year, but I'm paying 10% more at the grocery store. So it's like I got a pay cut. Well, even though you still have your job, uh, it obviously affects your overall views of the economy. I, my suspicion is inflation despite the decrease in gas prices because food prices are still so high and prices for other things are still so high. Uh, I still think inflation is going to be for the country, for all these Senate races. If you don't have a message on inflation, you're going to really struggle. Uh, and which was why I candidly think it's a little bit dangerous for Democrats to kind of ignore it uh, the way or, or treat it flippantly. I mean, they passed a bill called the Inflation Reduction Act which they've now admitted had nothing to do with inflation and everything to do with climate change and other other pet issues that they care about. So in this race, let's go ahead and just talk about the top line here uh, between Herschel Walker, the Republican, and Raphael Warnock, the incumbent uh, Democratic uh, senator. Um, you're talking about a 46 to 44 lead, at least in this Emerson College poll. I'm sure you have other polls um, mm-hmm. that you've been looking at, Scott, in addition to this one. What I find interesting uh, in this is that they ask a second question about who you predict will win. And despite the fact that Walker has generally more support within the margin of error still, but still, you know, is leading 53% of Georgians expect Warnock to win 47% expect uh, Walker. Is that a problem at all? Cause people sometimes like to pick the winner when you go into the ballot box for people who actually vote. Uh, in person, you know, that you go in there saying, I'm going to predict you want to be on the winning side sometimes. Isn't that isn't that a phenomenon? Yeah, I, I do think that's true. And I also think it could be true that um, that the answer to that question could be heavily influenced by how much advertising you're seeing for one or the other at that moment. And right now, in all these Senate races, I think uh, Democrats are vastly outspending Republicans. And so even if you like Herschel Walker, but you're sitting at home and you're watching television and you're seeing, you know, four to one, the number of ads for for Warnock, as you're seeing for Walker, you know, you might say, well, I like Herschel, but looks like Warnock's on all the time. So I, I think I do think that can influence your thinking on that. But but all that's really close. I think the, the last three surveys I've got in front of me here, you mentioned Emerson, Walker up two. you mentioned uh, there were a couple of others, Trafalgar around the same time, end of August, um, had Walker up one, 48, 47. And then early August, uh, something called the Phillips Academy had Walker up by a couple uh, a couple points. Um, so the last three surveys I've seen Walker up, but easily inside uh, the margin of error. So I think the, the crystal ball yellow toss-up uh, rating right here, absolutely right on it. I will say, um, just for our listeners, I had a chance to observe uh, Herschel Walker in person the other day at an event. I'd never met him, had not seen him speak, hadn't seen him answer questions or interact with people. So I was interested to observe him. And I was actually quite impressed. Uh, You know, I think the conventional wisdom or or the political press loves to beat on Herschel Walker. You know, he's not conversant in issues. He's not really quick on his feet. He doesn't know what he's doing. 
that was not what I saw at all. What I saw was a guy who had a had a stump speech. He did answer questions, some of them pointed, and he also clearly relished and enjoyed the interaction with individual voters. I saw him doing the Heisman pose with uh, different people. I saw him tossing a football with a kid. I, you know, I saw him doing all the things I would expect Herschel Walker to do, and I saw him doing all the things, uh, uh, you, you know, basic candidate skills that I would expect uh, uh, any any Republican candidate for the Senate to do. So I was actually quite impressed with Herschel. I think this is an extremely close race. I think Democrats are going to throw everything at this, but the kitchen sink. On the other side of it, uh, I think Warnock's a pretty talented politician. Uh, Stacey Abrams gets all the publicity in Georgia. Warnock's a better politician. He has a better chance to win. Uh, and I know a lot of people um, uh, who uh, I would consider to be moderates or uh, you know pro-business moderate types who, who have been impressed with Warnock. Somebody that I track, Joe, very closely on Georgia Impressed with politics. Warnock or impressed with Walker? No, impressed with Warnock. Um, okay. Gotcha. Uh, somebody that I track very closely uh, on Georgia politics is is our friend, friend of the pod, Eric Erickson, who's a big radio talk show host and, and Republican influencer there. He's quite high on Herschel Walker. He thinks Herschel Walker is going to win. He thinks the political press has this all wrong. And I think uh, I think I might talk to Eric some more between now and election. Day. Maybe we'll get him back on the pod. Uh, but he thinks people are misreading and certainly uh, not understanding the appeal of Herschel Walker in Georgia. Well, and and back to the sort of the media coverage. I mean, frankly, when I talked to you the other day after you t- had a chance to talk to Herschel Walker, I was very curious because I know you, I trust you, I like you, you know, and I'm thinking, OK, you're going to give me the straight scoop on this guy, because for the most part, most coverage that I've seen of Herschel Walker has been negative, you know, across the country. Most of the things that I've been able to see and um, and exactly for the reasons that you mentioned and the fact that, you know, you you kind of verified that you know this guy is the real deal is uh, I think it makes a difference. Well, I mean, think about the arc of Herschel Walker. You know, he got into the race with Trump's encouragement. Um, he did not really have a serious primary, uh, he, you know, a, a sort of token opposition. But the opposition that he did have unloaded a profile on him that that had a lot of personal, uh, you know, very personal attacks on Herschel Walker uh, regarding you know, things that have happened to him in his personal life, which he's been open about. Uh, but still, I mean, they opened the oppo file on this guy. Democrats, I think I read today, have now uh, decided to put some of that on TV themselves, uh, some of the stuff that went on in his marriage. So we'll see if that has an impact. Uh, people already know about it. It was used. Uh, you know, it's been widely covered. And so I think I think Herschel, um, I think if you, when you when you combine the Trump endorsement with the oppo file, with just, you know, kind of the sneering. Uh, that elites often have for candidacies like Herschel Walker, uh, I, I can understand why you feel like everything you've read about him is negative. I mean, they don't cover, you know, what people like about Herschel Walker, which is that, you know, he's a hero in Georgia. People want to meet him, and uh, that's not important to them. What's important to them is, oh, he's aligned with Trump, and I hate him. And so I do think he has suffered from some negative polling. I've also heard, by the way, that that over the last few months, he's uh, upgraded his team and, and added some players and pieces and is and is really buckled down on learning issues and and improving himself. I mean, he's he's coachable and uh, is what I've been told. And I saw those those upgraded skills personally on display the other night. So I, I, I agree with the rating. I think it's a toss up. Uh, but for people who thought Herschel Walker was just going to fade away because he didn't have it, uh, I, I think they're wrong. And I think he's going to be he's going to be right there all the way through. And, I, and again, I think Warnock is extremely tough. Uh, so to me, this is one of the most interesting races of the cycle. So Nevada and Georgia, again, the two uh, toss ups on the uh, 
UVA map. And before we leave them, Scott, there's there's a twofold question I want to ask you about. They both have to do with Trump and the rest of the Republican Party. Uh, in both cases, you have candidates, the primary candidate, the, the Republican nominees, I should say, are people who have been endorsed by Trump. Um, yet you have, and so you have sort of the other, when I talked about the media coverage before of Herschel Walker, the other big prevailing media coverage that you've seen is this concept of Republicans, the, the, the division within the GOP in general, uh, mm-hmm. between mainstream Republicans and maybe Mitch McConnell and the Senate uh, Leadership Fund and the Trump-backed, the Trump, the one, the people who got their virtue, or at least with the help of the former president's endorsement. It seems to me, you said before, uh, you know, that, that the certainly Herschel Walker was with Mitch McConnell, you know, the other day and at a, at a fundraiser. Uh, you have a situation where uh, it's, it looks like the, with the Nevada being a, a real possibility there for a flip, that Republicans were going to close ranks there. I guess that's my overall question for you. There's, do Republicans, do you think that they will, in fact, close ranks? And to what effect will Trump and his potential legal troubles factor in here the last 10 weeks of the campaign? Well, you've asked, I think, two different questions regarding Repu- Republic re- regarding Republican unity. I-, I think this is fully a construct, uh, you know, the idea that, that Republicans are dividing themselves. This is fully a construct of the media and of the White House. I mean, right now, Joe Biden and his press secretary are out there every day, you know, counting noses. You know, who's a fascist? Who isn't? Who's a semi-fascist? Who's a regular person? Like, they are trying to divide up Republicans, and they're trying to get Republicans to fight with each other. But Republicans, I think, are pretty unified in a couple of things. Whether you are a MAGA, whatever, Republican, or a Chamber of Commerce Republican, or just a regular Republican, or whatever you call yourself, you're unified in a couple of things. Number one, you think Joe Biden is the worst president of your lifetime. <laughs> and number two, you think it's pretty terrible that Democrats have had control of the Senate because of all the policy consequences that have followed. And so I don't think they're they're they are going to be divided up. And and if you look at the people that 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 Trump endorsed, well, McConnell endorsed a bunch of them too. I mean, Trump and McConnell, for instance, were were aligned on on Herschel Walker in Georgia. Both got behind him, and, and he obviously is the nominee. Laxalt in Nevada, same same situation there. So I, I really think this this division, supposed division in in the Republican Party, is something of a myth. But it's it's what Democrats tell themselves to make themselves feel better. Now. The more impactful question is, what impact does Trump have on the overall political environment? And I think the Mar-a-Lago issue, his constant, you know, rantings about we have to rerun the election and I should be reinstalled right now immediately. (laughs) And, you know, his constant attempts to insert himself at the center of the political conversation. Well, every day that the Republicans are talking about that is a day we're not talking about inflation. We're not talking about the economy. We're not talking about the southern border. We're not talking about, you know, whatever we think Joe Biden did to mess up that day or whatever deficiency the Democratic candidate has that day. And so I do think he's a distraction. And I think every day that we spend our time focusing our, you know, political rage on Merrick Garland or on, uh, you know, something else, um, we're not focusing it on the races that matter, the ones that will decide control of of the U.S. Congress. And so I do I do think Trump is a distraction and it's hard to quantify what that means. Uh, but obviously, the Democrats see an advantage in it because, uh, you know, Thursday night, Joe Biden's going to go give a big speech about this. I mean, it's kind of his what I would argue is the kickoff to his fall campaign. He's going to give a speech and it's largely centered on Trump. It sounds like being a threat to democracy. And they're trying to they're trying to force the national conversation to be about Trump 
Republicans should not take the bait. They should force the national conversation to be about the economy, inflation, and frankly, just the general direction of the country. Somewhere between 70 and 80 percent of Americans think the country is off on the wrong track. Democrats fully run the country right now. That's a very simple thing for voters to understand, and every Republican campaign should internalize that talking point and lead with it in every speech. I mentioned the gubernatorial race in Nevada just very briefly, and then we'll go on to the uh, the, the the changes in the UVA ratings this week. Uh, but just as a comparison, you know, we I said that Herschel Walker led Raphael Warnock by two points in that Emerson poll. In the governor's race, uh, Brian Kemp, who was not endorsed by Trump, uh, is is leading by 48-44 over Stacey Abrams. So slightly better, but still obviously within the margin of error or, or thereabouts. Let's go ahead and go to the. Um, Oh, let me let me say it. Let, let, since we're, I know we're not doing governor's race, but on Kemp, yeah. uh, there, yeah. there's some other surveys that have him over 50. Abrams almost is universally stuck at 44 in uh, every survey I've seen. And and I just feel like Kemp's got this thing. I feel like the Kemp campaign is extreme. And they might be the most well-run Republican campaign in the country. And I feel like they've got a turnout operation. They know what they're doing. And so you were asking me about the relationship between gubernatorial race and Senate race. This is one yeah. place. I think Brian Kemp's political machine, the way he's running it, the quality of what he's doing, their their ability to turn people out and motivate Republicans and, frankly, unify Republicans. Uh, remember, he overcame Trump in the primary. And so it shows you how strong he is among the Republican voters down there. I do think he can help Herschel Walker. So for what it's worth, um, I know there's a lot of discussion about, will people go split ticket and vote Kemp Warnock? And of course, there'll be some of that. But if Kent ultimately decides he really wants to help Herschel Walker, I think he's got the personal capital with voters to do it. I guess it actually is somewhat of a similar conversation when we go to Pennsylvania in terms of here you have a gubernatorial race, a Trump endorsed candidate there in that race, a Trump endorsed Republican nominee and in, in uh, Dr. Oz uh, taking on uh, John Fetterman. And uh, this is one that the uh, that the ratings changed uh, today uh, by Kyle Kondik and the crystal ball. Uh, going from a toss-up to leaning Democratic. Yeah, this is where, obviously, we have Fetterman and Oz, and um, just look at the polling, the most recent polling. It's all leaning Fetterman. Uh, the most recent one I saw is from Susquehanna, a B-plus pollster, um, but was taken the last week of August. They had Fetterman up 5, 49, 44. Uh, there was an Emerson College poll that you referenced that was a plus 4 for Fetterman, 48, 44. Um, then he had a couple of rough rolls for for Oz. There was one in mid-August from Franklin and Marshall that had Fetterman up 13. There was an early August survey from Public Opinion Strategies, which was a, a very well-regarded Republican pollster, had Fetterman up 18. I think that's a real outlier, frankly. But it's it's quite apparent that Fetterman has some kind of a polling lead. And why is that? Dr. Oz had a brutal primary. Uh, he had a lot, millions of dollars in negative ads spent against him. And some of the themes used in those ads are the same themes that Fetterman is using <laughs> against Dr. Oz now. So this is one of the cases where it was a very split Republican field. I think Donald Trump's endorsement made the difference for Oz. And I think the the amount of negative ads spent against Oz, even though he got the nomination, really did take a toll. Fetterman didn't have the same real problem coming out of his primary. Fetterman's problem is that he had a stroke and he has a health issue. He hasn't been seen in public much. They refuse to debate. He's not really capable of speaking or carrying on a big conversation right now in an interview. And so I think I think it's possible for two things to be true on Fetterman. One, 
you can have sympathy for him because of his health issue. But two, it's quite valid for a voter in Pennsylvania to wonder whether he's up to the job of being United States senator. And I think the Oz campaign is trying to hone in on this. I think they've been a little clumsy about it, but but I think that's where we are right now. Uh, and I agree with Kyle that this is now lean Democrat, but I would just caution that I believe Pennsylvania is going to be nip-tuck until the end. I think Oz has an excellent chance to win. Um, uh, and even though I think Fetterman does have a little lead in the polls today, my view is that the Republican apparatus believes the path to 51 runs through Pennsylvania, which means I would expect them to be in it until the end. And I think Democrats believe the same. So uh, th- this is this one might be the Super Bowl of, uh, of the map. You know, these Senate races we've been talking about all sound like implausible plots from some, I don't know, uh, you know, some novel. I mean, you have, in, I mentioned the Georgia thing, you have the, the pastor against the Heisman Trophy winner. It sounds, it's just implausible. Then you have this, the guy who lived in his, base, his parents' basement until he was 50 years old and became the mayor of a, you know, hard scrabble Pennsylvania town against the reality show, you know, Oprah doctor. You know, from yeah. this is it's really just it's just it's hard to even write these 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 plots. And so to, for me, it's been hard to kind of typically we can kind of look at some of these things and and the, the, the candidates aren't quite as much of a variable. Um, I mean, certainly they are a variable in every case. Candidate quality makes a big difference. It's just so hard for me to peg and figure out how people are going to perceive them, because ultimately that's the that's the whole point. Right. Is how people are going to perceive these people and and move forward. And. You know, Fredman, for instance, like for instance, right now this week in Pennsylvania, both campaigns are saying that crime is a big issue. Polling must be coming back that says crime is big. Yeah. Oz is talking about how Fetterman was on the board of pardons, the chairman of that, and you know, made his 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 uh, goal to let everybody out of prison. And then Fetterman is is showing tattoos on his arms about how he's backing the police and how he's keeping track of murders in his town and how much he cares about that. But what's what's first of all, the characters of these guys. And secondly, what does it say about crime being the number one or at least this week's uh, issue du jour? Well, on the on the issue of candidate quality and, you know, sort of who these people are, I, I think I think when you have outside observers and admittedly, I'm I'm one of them. I mean, I'm I'm part of the national media analysis core here. Uh, I don't live in Pennsylvania, but I have worked on a lot of campaigns, and I do think that the elite, you know, political analyst class and what they consider to be quality might sometimes be a little different than what the average Pennsylvanian or average Georgian might consider to be quality. Herschel Walker is a great point. I think there's just been a lot of condescension about Herschel Walker, but I think if Herschel Walker walks into a diner in a rural Georgia town, he could probably sign autographs for six hours. Now, you tell me. Is that candidate quality? I think it is. Mm-hmm. And so and so um, uh, I think that's that that's that. Uh, at the same time, uh, candidate quality does take into account how nimble people are and whether they're quick on their feet and, you know, how, you know, are they able to discuss the issue of the day uh, in, a, in a competent way and, and in a non-contradictory way? Because you don't want to you know say one thing one day and, and one thing another day on this issue of crime. Um, I, I've noticed that Democrats must see numbers on this that, that are indicating it's hurting them, because not only are the campaigns talking about it, as you mentioned, but Joe Biden uh, just yesterday gave a speech in which he was asserting that Democrats were actually the law and order party. And it was Republicans who who uh, don't like the police, which is a ludicrous assertion. 
but there only there's only one reason he would be saying that. I talked about this on CNN's New Day this morning. I'm recording this on Wednesday. There's a big clip online about it. I had a big fight with John Avlon about it. <laughs> but there's only one reason for Biden to be saying this is because he has to. The Democratic Party has staked out a very anti-police uh, position over the last few years. I mean, Democrat mayors, Democrat prosecutors, many members of Congress that are Democrats, a Democrat activist opinion leaders, they sort of align themselves around a posture of blame the police first, defund the police, and frankly, let violent criminals out of jail and be on the streets. And that then had the effect of police officer shortages in major cities and violent criminals out on the street once again committing violent crimes. That's on the Democrats. That's on them. And so for Biden to give that speech yesterday tells me he instinctively knows it's a problem for his party and he's trying to change the perception. I don't think it's going to work. I think the the cement has hardened on that, but I, I applaud him for trying. I mean, he has no choice but to try, but I'm just not sure voters are going to buy it. And, and Fetterman, you know, you mentioned him specifically. I mean, he's on the record at one point saying, if I could change one thing, it would be to end mandatory life sentences for murders. I mean, you know, is that the one thing you would change? I mean, I can think of a thousand things I would change before <laughs> I started monkeying around with keeping uh, violent criminals behind bars. So uh, I think a lot of these Democrats in their hearts, they really do think the police are a problem. But mm-hmm. for the purposes of their campaign, they know that voters don't agree with that. And so um, I, I do think they're going to struggle with that duality uh, for the next several weeks. The other uh, crystal ball ratings change on Wednesday, August 31st, 2022 um, is the state of Arizona race where the incumbent Mark Kelly uh, is uh, facing Blake Masters. Mark Kelly, of course, the astronaut. Uh, Masters, the venture capitalist. And this has been changing from a toss-up to leans Democratic. Yeah, I agree with that ratings change. Uh, you look at the, la- the latest polling, um, the best role for uh, Blake Masters, the Republican, has been a Trafalgar Group survey that was taken in this last week uh, that had Kelly leading by four, 48 to 44. There's been some other surveys that have Kelly up anywhere from seven to 18, 16 points. And so I, I think the double digit stuff is a total outlier. They they did this to Martha McSally in the last cycle. You know, all this polling showing her down 10, 11, 12 points. I mean, she ended up in a in a low single digit race. So I really do think it's it's a close race, but I do think Kelly has the edge and I think Kelly has a massive financial advantage here. There's been some reporting in the last 48 hours from Puck News, which is a new uh, newsletter uh, uh, and also the Washington Post about disagreements going on in the Republican atmosphere about who's going to fund Blake Masters. Blake Masters got the nomination in Arizona. It was a tough primary, but he was heavily funded by the tech donor Peter Thiel. And Peter Thiel, I think, invested like $15 million in Masters. Masters used to work for Thiel. Well, now the general election is here, and Blake Masters does not have any campaign funds. I mean, he's he's running low on cash, and Peter Thiel has not yet uh, decided to or maybe has decided not to invest <laughs> as heavily in the general election as he did in the primary, which frankly doesn't make much sense to me. I mean, you, if you invested to get someone their party's nomination, why wouldn't you want to invest to get them their uh, you know, to try to get them over the finish line. Well, I, you know, the Senate Leadership Fund, which is the super PAC that's the principal Senate super PAC that's connected to Mitch McConnell, they have canceled some TV buys in Arizona, which some people have interpreted as maybe they don't believe that Masters uh, can do it. And so I think there's a lot of jostling and arguing going on right now in the Republican atmosphere about 
uh, is Arizona going to be a priority and who's going to fund it if it is? And that hasn't been worked out yet. And, and of course, for Masters, you know, this is a disaster because <laughs> he, he has no ability to keep up with Mark Kelly's fundraising. Kelly is a master fundraiser, he's a huge war chest. He was the same way two years ago. So uh, for a variety of reasons, I think, I think the ratings change on this one was warranted. I still think Arizona could be a close race. There's a there's a survey in the governor's race, the same survey that had Masters down four in the Senate race. I think had Carrie Lake for governor up narrowly on Hobbs, the Democrat for governor. So it's obvious that, that there's Republican voters in Arizona who want a chance to to vote Republican. And Master just seems to be a little short right now of where um, of where Carrie uh, uh, Lake is in the governor's race. And, and we'll see how the money shakes out. Ultimately, getting outspent the way Masters is on track to get outspent would make it very, very difficult to win. Well, I will say this from a from a media observation standpoint, Carrie Lake has grabbed all the oxygen out of Arizona. I've seen much more coverage of her over the last couple of weeks than I have of of the Senate race. Oh, yeah. And and by the way, whatever you think of her, and, and she obviously just the media savaged her, she has a lot of natural communications talent. Former TV from, anchor, right? A, absolutely. She comes from TV. She knows how to work the camera. She knows how to talk and 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 pause at the right times her time i mean her timing is really good her you know just the way she she presents herself behind a podium she's really really talented again you may agree or disagree with the way her message comes out and how she in the issues the position she takes on issues but there's no question she is like absolute talent when it comes to you know big rallies and public communications so those are the uh the, the two big changes there in terms of the um the, the the crystal ball from the UVA Center for uh, for politics. The other thing that other, one of the race that we've I think all been watching very carefully. Anytime you have an incumbent uh, perhaps in trouble is uh, the let's go to Wisconsin, Scott. Yeah. And uh, Senator Ron Johnson there. Recent polling showing uh, the Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes with a slight edge over the incumbent uh, Republican Ron Johnson. Uh, on Sunday, the Trafalgar Group released the the survey. Uh, which was conducted about a week ago, 22nd through 25th of August. Barnes 49.4%, Johnson 47.1%. Yeah, this is an interesting race. Ron John uh, has been elected twice, and in both cases, everyone was surprised when he won. Uh, and so I don't know if he's lucky or good. I mean, that's the real question about Ron Johnson. He is running against an extremely liberal opponent. Mandela Barnes is very liberal. Uh, and I'm sure Johnson's going to make hay of that. If you just look at the polling, Trafalgar's got Johnson down a couple uh, points to Barnes. Uh, Fox News, their latest survey in mid-August, they had Barnes up four points. Uh, Mid-August from Marquette University Law School, they had Barnes up seven points. Uh, and and there were some other surveys from back in June that had uh, Nelson up narrowly or Johnson up narrowly. But right now, the last August surveys, there's been three, all had Barnes up a tick. Uh, over Johnson. Now, the 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 crystal ball still has Johnson uh, rated as the favorite here. And I think leans that's, leans. Um, and I think that's right. But I don't think Ron Johnson's out of the woods. Uh, but I also don't think I would uh, I would um, discount his ability to have a ha- have this more under control than the polling or or the analyst may give him credit for. Um, one thing we haven't talked about the last several yeah. cycles. Senate polling has been absolute garbage. I, I was going to mention that. And, my hope, I'm, I'm part of the former journalist and um, was part of one of the worst uh, <laughs> sponsored media polls back in 2014. 
that had Allison Lundgren Grimes uh, even with or perhaps favoring over Mitch McConnell, the incumbent. And I believe she lost by 14 somewhere in that in that uh, ballpark there. And uh, that was sort of like the people started. Well, we have to change all this and reorder this has. But didn't weren't some of the presidential polls uh, much closer and better the last time around? I think the presidential polling was was a little bit better. I've, I've been focused mostly on the Senate polling because of the sure, midterm. Sure. And uh, there's a there's a pollster and a statistician that I follow pretty closely named G. Elliott Morris, and uh, he actually has been a guest in one of my classes before. He writes for the Economist. He's a he's a data journalist. He he did a Twitter thread on this the other day, and he ran some polling simulations. And he said if you believe that Senate polls today have no national bias toward the Democrats then they are 80% likely to hold the majority based on polls and not fundamentals. However, if you think the polls in this cycle will be as biased as they were in 2020, then according to his simulations, the Democrats are actual underdogs uh, to hold on to the Senate. Um, and, And then he goes on to say, if you consider the state biases, the picture is bleaker. Um, And so, He's saying the Democrats this year are susceptible to the same potential bias uh, in the northern battleground states as they were in 2016 and 2020. Most of the forecasting models assume uh, that there's no polling error, but there has been a big polling error <laughs> in, uh, mm-hmm. in the Senate polling. You, you just you know, it, and it's not just been on who who wins and loses, but on margins. You know, the, the margins have been way off. Kentucky was a good example. Maine was an example last cycle. Um, South Carolina was an example. I mean, yeah, there's just been there's just been a lot of examples of huge misses, and it's and it has flowed mostly towards bias towards the Democrats. And so, you know, who's to say if that's going to be the case uh, in this particular in this particular cycle? But it, it is something a lot of people like me pay attention to because if if you look at how close these polls are now, if you see a Democrat up slightly, well, if they're missing it as badly as they missed it before. You know, it could it could really lead to, lead you to make some some assumptions about what's going to happen on election night that may not come true. Let's go to uh, from Wisconsin to uh, a somewhat neighboring state of Ohio, and uh, it, it wasn't a change this week, Scott, but last week the Center for Politics and Kyle Condick uh, changed this Senate race from uh, leaning Republican. I'm sorry, they changed it from likely Republican to leaning Republican, so slightly in the direction of the Democrat uh, Tim Ryan. Um, Tim Ryan's own uh, research firm, the, the Democratic firm called Impact Research, uh, showed him with a 50 to 47 uh, lead over uh, J.D. Vance, certainly within the margin of error there. It shows Vance getting more unpopular with voters. Yeah, uh, I think they popped that survey out. And Impact Research, according to 538, is a B or C rated pollster. So not as good as Trafalgar, not as good as Emerson. But I think they popped that out because of the atmosphere. You know, think about what's going on in Ohio. Um, Vance has not been a good fundraiser. uh, And the Senate Leadership Fund, which we talked about earlier, made a huge announcement that they're going to lay down $28 million in spending in Ohio, uh, a state that Donald Trump won by double digits. And so I think the Ryan campaign really wanted to pop out a survey showing them competitive because they didn't they don't want Democrats to believe, well, it's a really red state. The Republican cavalry has arrived. They don't want people to bail on them. I think they feel like they're in danger of of you know being cut off, essentially, uh, when you get into this. You know, when you get into the fall, you start to, to look at which which states are real and which states are 
are not as viable. And so for the Democrats, because of Ohio's performance in the last couple of presidential cycles, you could see how Democrats would would conclude that Ryan will be close, but no cigar. They did put out a survey showing his campaign ahead. The last two independent surveys, Trafalgar and Emerson, both had Vance up. Uh, Trafalgar had Vance up 50 to 45 and Emerson had Vance up 45 to 42. Vance's main problem is his campaign has virtually nothing in the bank and and seems to be almost completely dependent on outside intervention, which he is going to get from the Senate Leadership Fund, according to their media reservations. Mm -hmm. It's what Blake Masters is not getting yet. And so uh, and of course, Vance has the benefit of running in a very red state, at least over the last couple of cycles, uh, whereas Masters is running in an extremely purple state. So I agree that this one is still lean Republican. Uh, but Tim Ryan is is trying to make it competitive. He's running the kind of race uh, that you would have to run to win over moderate Ohio voters by being a moderate. I mean, I've seen him on CNN twice this week, uh, right ahead of panels that I was part of, where he was on TV bashing Joe Biden's student debt plan and and really kind of trying to carve out a space of, hey, I'm not a liberal Democrat. I'm more of a working class moderate Democrat. Well, that's what he's got to do to even have a prayer in Ohio. So we'll see if the, I suspect the polling in this one's going to remain close. I think Vance also suffered a little bit from the extreme negativity of the primary. But on the whole, if Republicans can't win a Senate race in a state like Ohio, where Donald Trump is overwhelmingly popular and won twice, it probably means a whole bunch of crap went wrong in every state, not just this one. So we mentioned Wisconsin, which is a lean Republican on the UVA crystal ball. Ohio is a lean Republican in the UVA crystal ball. Uh, North Carolina is still a lean Republican in the uh, UVA crystal ball. Yeah, I think North Carolina, I think uh, Republicans basically feel good about North Carolina. Um, Ted Budd is the Republican uh, nominee down there, had a primary and frankly, um, won a primary that not a lot of people thought he was going to win. Starting out, the former governor down there, Pat McCrory, was thought to be the favorite. And Ted Budd just ran a steady as she goes campaign. He did get Trump's endorsement and he had some outside intervention from the club for growth. And and they ran a very, very uh, solid campaign, not flashy. He's kind of a generic, you know, Republican guy. But that may be all that you need uh, in a in a cycle like this. I met Ted Budd the other night and also saw him in action. Seems like a very solid character. Republicans feel pretty good about this campaign right now, and they feel pretty good about North Carolina being more generically inclined to go Republican. So of all the states uh, that we hear people wondering about right now, um, uh, this one is not one you hear national Republicans fretting about so much. I mean, the polling on it right now, I think the I think the the 538 average has butt up uh, 43.6 to 43.4. So essentially a dead heat. Uh, but there haven't been that many North Carolina polls. Uh, the ones that have come out have shown a pretty close race. But um, I have some pretty good contacts in that in that campaign and in that state. And and a lot of folks feel really good about Ted Budd. Uh, again, I, I rate this one as a as a lean Republican. And, and Beasley's pretty liberal and Budd is pretty much aligned with where more North Carolina voters are. So I'm not I'm not terribly worried about this one. So you mentioned that it sounds like Ted Budd maybe has the resources to be able to run a competitive campaign there while J.D. Vance in Ohio is maybe struggling with some of that fundraising. Same situation maybe in Arizona for the Republicans. In general, uh, tell me where we are just overall between the two parties and their ability to raise funds. To what extent does having the incumbent, having the Democrat, uh, in other words, you're, you're, uh, you're, uh, the, 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 the person who's the president is of your party. What what difference does that make in terms of a fundraising uh, situation and, and who's going to have a campaign cash advantage in general? 
Well, Democrats are going to have the advantage. One thing we've learned the last few cycles is that Democrats have all the money. You know, for a lot of my political career, Republicans were thought of as the party of having, you know, most of the campaign money. That's just totally over. And Democrats have unlimited resources, basically. I mean, they had losing candidates in the last cycle, literally ending the campaign with millions of dollars in the bank uh, because they couldn't spend it all. I mean, they they literally couldn't. Uh, they literally couldn't figure out how to spend it all, and uh, and uh, and that's going to happen again. So most of these Senate candidates are going to have plenty of money. The question is on their outside intervention. You know where which states do the Senate strategists, the Democrat strategists, think are worth investing in? You know, for for North Carolina, you know, is it worth investing in uh, Sherry Beasley, who's not an incumbent, when you're trying to save Cortez Masto? When you may be trying to save Bennett in Colorado, when you may be trying to even save Patty Murray in Washington, uh, a lot, I would argue that it's a lot easier to save an incumbent like that than it would be to try to drag somebody like Beasley across the finish line in, in North Carolina. Uh, but make no mistake, Democrats have the money. Uh, Republicans, you know, they're not broke, but they're certainly deficient in most of these states to where the Democrat fundraising position is. When I ask about New Hampshire, it's kind of interesting because we're not we don't know yet who the Republican nominee is going to be there. I so it's more of a question right now, maybe generic ballot versus uh, the incumbent Maggie Hassan. Yeah, uh, uh, Hassan is thought of. Or Hassan, uh, yeah, thank you. yeah uh, uh, has, she's been she's been thought to be extremely weak by Republicans. And I agree. Uh, Donald Trump was competitive in New Hampshire and and. Um, She's not a great uh, incumbent, and Democrats, I think, are pretty worried about her. There is a Republican primary going on, and there's a big question about uh, uh, which which Republican uh, could, um, you know, be the most competitive. Uh, you know, the Republican primary, I think, is September the 13th. That's correct. Uh, there's a guy named De- uh, Don Boldick who is a retired Army general. He was a big Trump guy. Trump kind of likes him, although he hasn't endorsed him. He's been leading in the polls over uh, state Senate President Chuck Morse and several others. Um, so we'll see where this goes. There is a school of thought that Boldick would not be as competitive as Morse against Hassan, which would be a shame because I do believe she's vulnerable. I don't. I think she's like Cortez Masto, real weak and real beatable. Uh, but in the case of Nevada, we got the right nominee, and we're not sure about what's going to happen in New Hampshire just yet. But it would be great you know, for Republicans if they had a, another competitive Democrat on the board here that would be a great thing because, you know, per our conversation about North Carolina, every incumbent you're defending makes it that much harder for you to invest in a, an outlier state like North Carolina. Should mention in the UVA Center for Politics, Crystal Ball, and they deserve all the credit in the world for uh, since they're. I'm kind of basing this my questions to Scott upon their ratings, but they rate before this Republican primary. Uh, Maggie Hassan uh, leans Democrat in uh, New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. A little bluer state is that it's, it's con- currently considered likely Democrat by UVA is one that I found an interesting uh, headline in the New York Times yesterday, which says a surprise Senate race in Colorado, Michael Bennett and Joe O'Day. Well, who, we know who Michael Bennett is, but who's Joe O'Day? Yeah, businessman had a, had a primary. Democrats invested heavily to try to stop him from getting the nomination over a more Trump-centric uh, Republican uh, in that primary. See, you could tell Democrats knew early on if O'Day got this thing, it was going to be a problem. And I think Bennett is vulnerable. Colorado has been a blue state. Uh, the polling has had Bennett up. Uh, Trafalgar had him up like six in mid-August. And uh, 
PPP polling, public policy polling, which I think is garbage, but they have an A minus rating. But I, I really think they're they're a Democrat PR firm, not a polling firm. They have been at up 11. Uh, but I think Republicans love O'Day. I think uh, the, the apparatus thinks he's the right guy. Uh, he's kind of carving out and kind of carving his own path. I think his message is right for the state. And I think he's going to make a go of it. And I think uh, I think based on what I've heard, Republicans are going to be in Colorado all the way through. So this is one of those this is one of those things where in a good environment with a good candidate, uh, you can make a run at a, at a weaker incumbent. And I think Colorado fits the bill. I do believe, you know, rightly on the map, it's still you would consider it to be on the, you know, on the Democrat side right now. But I think Republicans can and will make this at a minimum competitive all the way through October. It's really interesting. And we talked about this several times, the uh, the, the one party uh, dabbling in or, you know, running advertisements in the other party's primary cycle that happened in Colorado, where the Democrats spent millions of dollars trying to cast Joe O'Day as a Joe Biden loving liberal. And uh, now they're trying to kind of retrace those steps and and call him a, a Donald Trump extremist. What what the Democrats have done in terms of meddling in Republican primaries is one of the most cynical, faithless things <laughs> I have ever seen. And uh, and I think they're going to pay for it. I really think they're going to come to regret it. I don't know where and I don't know when, but I really think they're going to regret meddling. In the, maybe it's Colorado where they end up coming to regret it. Uh, but boy, you talk about you talk about some people who tossed all. I mean, if you really believe your rhetoric that democracy is on the ballot, that's their message. Democracy is on the ballot. Our democracy is at stake. They say that all the time. Then you wouldn't be investing in people who you say are the ones who are imperiling democracy. But that's exactly what they did in Colorado and in several other places. So uh, I'm high on O'Day right now until uh, proven otherwise. I'm going to assume uh, he's in the ball game and that uh, Democrats may have uh, had this blow up in their face. So the, the juxtaposition here is interesting in Colorado, which is still rated as likely Democrat on the UVA map. Going across the country to Florida, which is still rating Florida as likely Republican uh, for the incumbent Marco Rubio. But this is a situation where just as Republicans are kind of salivating at the their chances in Colorado, Democrats are now seeing uh, Marco Rubio as much more vulnerable. Uh, the Congresswoman Val Demings has outraised him by about you know, 10 or 12 million dollars there in that race. And so she has plenty of money to be able to. Uh, to, to to speak up for her cause. Is Marco Rubio in, in danger here? I don't think so. But like I said, uh, and this is a good example that you just brought up, even the Democrats that are in two states like Florida or tier three states even, are they're going to have plenty of money. And Demings is going to have uh, all the money in the world to run a campaign against Marco Rubio. The last three surveys I see are impact research that was actually sponsored by the Democrat Governors Association. They have Rubio up three a uh, center street pack had Rubio up 11 in mid August. And, um, um, you know, I, it feels to me like Rubio is ahead. Florida is a Republican state. Ron DeSantis is on the ballot. I think he's going to be great, uh, and perform just fine. So I don't worry about Florida again. I, I, I th- this is another one. If something goes haywire and we're running scared in Florida, I mean, the, in, th- what that means for the rest of the map is not good <laughs> if you're a Republican. And so, I really haven't thought much about this one because I just consider it to be uh, more on the safe side for the Republican Party. But admittedly, Demings is an impressive person and she will have money. And anytime you put those two things together, you can't take things for granted. So we've gone through 10 races there, Scott. We've gone through the the changes in in um, the, the crystal ball ratings. We've gone through 
uh, some of the ones that are, um, you know, the, the, the leaning and, and, and had some more fluctuation there. And even the last two are, are more solidly in, in one camp or another. What are, what are we missing? Anything else that you want to, any other state you think that you're especially intrigued by? Yeah, Washington State I'm watching because I think the Republican candidate there, Smiley, is a very high-quality candidate. Washington's a blue state, uh, but I think Patty Murray is pretty weak. She started running um, uh, negative ads against Smiley in Seattle over the summer, uh, which told me she heard the footsteps. And so maybe they took the steps they needed to take to keep Smiley at bay, but I was really impressed with Smiley's first ad. Uh, in which she just took the fight right to Patty Murray and said, I'm not going to allow you to define me. I'm my own person. I mean, it, I thought it was right on. And Smiley, uh, obviously, is somebody who people connect with, an amazing personal story. So uh, I think where like Democrats are, are hoping Val Demings can overcome the Republican lean of Florida and make it a race, I'm hoping, uh, Republicans are hoping that Smiley uh, can turn a bluer state like Washington into a race for the same reason, because you've got a, a candidate with some real Great backstory and real, real high quality skills there. Well, Patty Murray running for his sixth term. Uh, Smiley, you know, ne- has not held office before. She's a, a veterans advocate, a former nurse, and so just from an optics standpoint, which is not a, I know, not a favorite word of of campaign operatives like you, but still from that standpoint, I think that there is, it makes it somewhat intriguing, despite the fact she has a pretty uphill road here in a blue state. Yeah, again, uphill battle. Everybody acknowledges that, but. I really do believe uh, the quality of her candidacy is going to be something to watch. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's one of those where if you could rearrange the pieces on the board and, and put candidates in different places. I mean, if you put Smiley in any other purple state, I think she's she's hands down the favorite. <laughs> but she happens to live in a very blue state. So obviously it's an uphill battle. But boy, she she looks like a high quality candidate and, and frankly, a, a high quality person. Just generally politics aside, I'm very intrigued by her campaign. As you wrap up, Scott, just from, from you are a veteran campaign operative. You've been doing campaigns and Senate races and gubernatorial races and presidential races for, what, 20, 25 years. Um, mm-hmm. We're 10 weeks away or so from the midterm. What are the campaigns? What what is what does that mean in terms of what they're looking at and how they're are they gearing up for the final push yet? Or is it Labor Day is the, the, the traditional kind of what we look at in the media as being sort of like the beginning of the end or the sprint to the finish year? But what's going on inside these campaigns? What kind of reassessments are happening? Well, um, it depends on, you know, where you are in the race. Are you up or down? Are you the incumbent? Are you the challenger? Uh, your budget situation. Uh, you know, a lot of people right now are looking at at revenue and and how much money's coming in and and when can we get up on TV? When can we increase our buy? When can we start you know dropping our mail pieces? So you really you're really starting to crunch down on that. Also, the political calendar in your state makes a difference. Some states have a lot more early voting than others. Some states out west have a lot of vote by mail. And even though it's Labor Day and we think of that as the kickoff, you're not that many weeks away in some places. Uh, from when actual voters can get actual ballots and turn them in. And when that starts happening, you know, then it's live. You know, then then you really are, uh, you know, election days all month in some places. So it really is sort of dependent upon where you are in your situation. But by now, campaigns really ought to have a very clear picture of who they want to be for the voters. You know, what image do we want to present? What is our message? What's our core what is the thing we're focused on the most? And they ought to have a very clear picture of how am I going to most effectively prosecute the case against my opponent? What are the three things in which they're most deficient? 
what what do I want to define myself as and what do I want to define my opponent as in as simple and efficient terms as possible? That That's really where you ought to be by now. Uh, and obviously, um, um, some of these campaigns are getting sidetracked by national issues. And you could get sidetracked. Ask the Democrats. You know, when Joe Biden does something like the student debt plan, uh, I'm sure, you know, Cortez Masto had no interest in waking up that day and talking about it, but she had to do it, as did Tim Ryan in, in Ohio. So you've, you've got your plan and you know what you're trying to execute uh, based on your theory of the case. But then you're also having to make those daily adjustments based on the national news cycle. The Mar-a-Lago raid happens. And all of a sudden, if you're a Republican campaign, all of your activists are wanting to know what you think about that. And so uh, you have your plan running on one track, and then you have your reaction team running on a separate track. And what you hope is is that your plan uh, really, uh, uh, you know, you're able to execute your plan on more days than you're really running a defensive campaign and just kind of reacting to the news of the day. And then, of course, on top of all of it, there's just stuff that's out of your control. Uh, what happens with inflation? Is there some sort of an emergency or an international crisis? Is there some news of the day that shakes the foundation of you know, what we thought about a particular issue. Uh, does somebody in your party say something monumentally stupid that you then have to answer for? I've certainly lived through campaigns. Uh, 2012 was, a, was an example where Mitt Romney and the 47% comment that was blown up by the media and every Senate candidate for the rest of the cycle was running around being chased by reporters wanting to know what they thought about Mitt Romney. Well, they didn't say it, they, but they were having to react to someone in their party. That's going to happen. Uh, Donald Trump's going to say something that you that the Republicans will have to answer for. And Joe Biden's going to say something that the Democrats have to answer for. So it, it really is a, a complicated thing uh, that, that these uh, campaign operatives are doing right now. And you're trying to balance all of this uh, as you as you head down the stretch drive and and also, uh, you know, make sure that your your core supporters know to turn out. It's a midterm. It's not going to be a highest turnout as there's a presidential election. And so, you know, there's there's some uh, you know, we think of campaigns more of persuasion. Uh, but but there's just a lot of just raw push and pull. Get people to the polls that you are reasonably sure are inclined to support your party. And that's just a lot of knocking doors, dragging people out, getting them to vote, making the calls, knocking the door again, making the call again, sending a piece of mail. I mean, it sounds rudimentary, but but that's how that's how campaigns are won in very close races. That's Scott Jennings. Looking forward to seeing you uh, uh, all the time on CNN, Scott. Uh, thanks for the one on one on this uh, midweek edition, August 31st of 2022 of Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. I am your usual roundtable host, Joe Arnold, not with you next week, but the rest of the team with Scott coming back. Scott, thanks for your time and thanks for listening to yeah. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. 